Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwald. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, El Wretches to its friends, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. And Eliana Johnson, I want to use this incredibly powerful platform and our, our deep reach across this great nation to share a public service announcement. My eldest man child will be driving next year, and I'm thinking very much about that and, and rules for driving. And we live in a place where, looking at you, Maryland, some of the worst drivers in America ply their trade on the congested roads of the Washington, D.C. metro area. And I have a lit on two rules that are, I, I'm sure, deeply informed by my personal Christian faith for driving. Number one, if you screw up when you're driving, you're in the wrong lane, you missed a turn, whatever, you have to eat it, right? You cannot block the rest of traffic. You cannot swerve across three lanes. You cannot try to turn left from the right lane. You have to eat it and drive around, even if it makes you late. And the second is like it, which is if someone is doing wrong, right? If someone is not obeying the first commandment of driving, you must allow them in. You must let them merge. You must let them get over. By, by these measures, only can you keep yourself safe and be respectful of other drivers. Here endeth the lesson. Can I make a separate comment about the advancing technology in cars okay. before we get into it? I have been doing a lot of travel recently, and um, I've been in several rental cars. I hate lane assist where you know this technology that keeps you in supposed to keep you in your own lane and it automatically like redirects you from if you veer off the straight line of your own lane it is the most jarring this thing has to be causing what, accidents it petrifies which, me and then because it's a rental car i don't know how to turn which it version off did you find most odious who's who's which car I, maker any kind, any type of it. I had one in an Audi and one in a Jeep or something. It was the Jeep. The Jeep one. The Jeep one is is bad. I. Oh my gosh! It's, it's alarming, and you're fighting it. And if you're certainly if you're not familiar with it, but I will also say that I've had it in some vehicles. Had it rented a. Oh no no wait I'm sorry I have it backwards. The Jeep one was good. I rented a Jeep over the summer for a trip, a vacation trip. And that one was less jarring, but some of them, yes, when it when you get the haptic buzz on the steering wheel, it's alarming, and then you're fighting it while you're driving. Uh, it's horrible. All right, let's get into it. I had just a general comment. You know, I'm looking at the front page of the was uh, of the Washington Post today, and and we're recording on Friday morning. Blinken in Israel to urge humanitarian pause. The New York Times, same thing. As Gaza war enters new phase, Israel faces pressure over civilian deaths. 
Blinken backs Israel while pushing for more aid in Gaza. It, my thought on this, Chris, was just, it is so indicative of, in the press, the backwards understanding of this, why both in our politicians and our press is the pressure on Israel rather than on Hamas, uh, which could also end the war, return the hostages. Why is it not calls on Hamas to return hostages, lay down arms and surrender to save civilians in Gaza? All of the pressure, all of the coverage is about Israel. The civilian deaths hung around Israel's neck when in reality, every one of the civilian casualties in this war is the fault of Hamas. And never, never is it covered that way in the mainstream press. Well, f- I think the f- the first in the in the light most favorable to the defendant, the there is a an, an inequality in capacity here, which is that you know what Hamas is because they say it right. <clears throat> they go on their their spokespeople go on television and say, "Oh yeah." We're going to do many more October 7th. This is our purpose. This is my one of my favorites was a Hamas representative was asked, why don't you let the uh, women and children shelter in your tunnel network from the air attacks? And the answer is, well, no, we need those to kill Israelis, right? We have to kill Jews and we need the tunnels to fight the war so they can't come down there. So the, so if you were looking at okay who could who could be politically pressured you can't you, there's no pressuring hamas right they're barbaric and so there is you can politically pressure israel which has a democratic system and elected leaders and does all that you can't with hamas the other thing of course is and we saw this in the cold war frequently the we we talk in the media a lot about equivocation or false equivalency. And you very often hear it. I think recently Chuck Todd was doing an interview at Harvard and he was like, we need to be objective. We need to be objective. We need to be objective. And then he said, except for with Republicans, right? Because they're, because they're, because they're, they're bad and we know they're bad, but in everything else, we should try to be fair. The, the movement in the media against false equivalency or both sidesism they talk people journalistic scholars and pundits talk a lot about that from the progressive point of view I'm talking about domestic politics and yet they cannot seem to see it when it comes to this conflict right here's a case where false equivalency matters and where treating these two entities as the same is unacceptable in the same way that during the Cold War, it was unacceptable to say, you know, the Soviets, the Americans, you know, not not a dime's worth of difference really when you get down to it. It's just a conflict between superpowers as opposed to acknowledging the dishonesty, brutality, and inhumanity of Soviet communism. And I think we, I, th- I think that blame America first knee-jerk reaction carries over to Israel because of the close connection between Israel and the United States. I actually think it's worse than that in that they're not treating them equivalently. They are making demands of Israel that they would never make of Hamas. They are blaming Israel for things for which they are not blaming Hamas, hanging civilian casualties around Israel's neck and not pointing out that actually this is a deliberate tactic by Hamas, 
with which to shame, humiliate, apply pressure to Israel. It's a political tactic on their part. They have no reverence for human life. And if the media were covering this accurately, they would note that the civilian casualties are Hamas's civilian casualties, not Israel's. Well, there's so I think I think it's worse than treating putting them on the same plane. There, it is compounded by the infantilization of Hamas, right? And saying because if you and we're, we have a really interesting piece on this about colonialism and all of this stuff. But if you start with the premise that everything Hamas does is really Israel's fault because of the conditions in which the people in their jurisdiction live, then you can say, okay, well, they they can't do anything about it. And we certainly saw it with the Taliban. We've seen it again and again, which is to for people who say, well, it's, they're children, right? Basically treating them like children instead of giving them agency. Let's get into the actual articles. This caught my attention. You know, we've seen... And we're going to get to one in my obsession, this tendency to hair split, which I think is a desire to, the, the hair splitting is a way to minimize what Hamas has done here. But the Washington Post's Glenn Kessler decided to fact check. The headline is Biden's dismissal of the reported Palestinian death toll. So he's going to fact check how accurate Hamas's death toll numbers are. So Glenn Kessler writes, Biden's dismissal of the ministry's statistics that he had, quote, no confidence in them was striking. The State Department has regularly cited ministry statistics without caveats in its annual human rights reports. Must be right then, you know. Um, Kessler continues, the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, real hotbed of Zionism there, which tracks deaths in the conflict, has found the ministry's numbers to be reliable after conducting its own investigation. Past experience indicated that the tolls were reported with high accuracy, a UN official told the fact checker. With any numbers, there are caveats. Questions have also been raised about the ministry's statistics after a still murky incident at the Al-Ali hospital was said to have killed nearly 500 people. So let's explore whether Biden's opinions of the, of the statistics has a factual basis. I mean, first of all, the incident around the hospital is not still murky. I think we know pretty accurately what happened. But this to me is just... It's so indicative of what ha- what's happening in the press and is the fact checker equivalent of did did Hamas behead 40 babies or 35 babies and did they behead them or were they just found with severed heads? Yeah, another great moment in fact check journalism. Another another pinnacle moment. What do we have next here? Oh, this New York Times. Rothman here, the our our friend Noah Rothman deserves credit here for finding and seizing upon really could be a facile, but the great New York Times headline, fantastic. After years of vowing to destroy Israel, Iran faces a dilemma. It's tough, right? I mean, you know, put yourself in the Iranian shoes. Subhead with Israel bent on crushing Iran's ally Hamas, Tehran Tehran must decide whether it and the proxy militias it arms and trains will live up to its fiery rhetoric. Just I got to say, I got to say, to do a, this is a sort of like, it's the sort of piece you would do 
about a newly elected president or a member of the uh, of the of the Congress in which you'd say, well, they talk this way on the campaign trail, but can they deliver? And it's it's a doozy. I'll read a little bit from Noah here. What, quote, dilemma is that, you wonder? The subhead clarifies. To put the proposition in plainer terms, Iran's predicament seems to be that it has incubated a variety of bloodthirsty terrorist groups in the region, all of whom have promised to kill as many Jews as possible. But now with Hamas having demonstrated that the mass slaughter of Israeli Jews is possible and the Gaza war in full swing, will Iran and its proxies make good on their pledge? The mind reels. Once again, the something here is the murder of Israelis and Americans. Is that an undeniable outcome? We don't get the sense of that from the author's bloodless copy. And right on Noah Rothman. Speaking of bloodless copy, Chris, my head exploded when I read the following. The New York Times also, we have a real New York, real banner of New York Times coverage here, had a piece. And of course, as always, we will link all of these in our newsletter. Who decides Penn's future, colon, donors or the university? Some alumni want the president to resign. They're angry about a Palestinian conference and Penn's response to the Hamas attacks, as well as DEI and transgender rights. And the piece is about the you know top donors to the University of Pennsylvania uh, pulling their funding over Penn's reaction to the terrorist attacks on Israel. But Weeks before this happened, there was a conference hosted by the university called the Palestine Rights Conference. And one of the guests at the conference was the Pink Floyd frontman Roger Waters, who is a noxious anti-Semite and has dressed as a Nazi in costume. He has hung from the ceiling, from the rafters at his concerts, an inflatable pig with a Nazi insignia on it. And his hostility to Jews and the Jewish state is well documented over the decades. And the way that the New York Times wrote about who Roger Waters is and what and the anti-Semitism he has expressed made my head explode, um, talking about bloodless prose. So this is in reference to objections to the Palestine Rights Conference, where this anti-Semitism was expressed on in an event sponsored by and held at the University of Pennsylvania. So the Times writes, the donors, quote, cited a range of speakers that they considered objectionable. They noted, for instance, the presence of the Pulitzer Prize winning novelist Viet Thanh Nguyen, a vocal supporter of the movement to boycott, divest, from and sanction Israel, known as BDS, and they objected to Roger Waters, the Pink Floyd mu musician, who had worn a Nazi-like costume in a Berlin concert, which he said was intended as a statement against fascism. Period. Obviously, no further comment. Obviously, what what else what else could it mean? Right? He was uh, kidding. He J J.K. Right? Just the the idea that you would give him the benefit of the doubt cite his rebuttals and not simply refer to him as what he is, which is an anti-Semite, is appalling, appalling, and so revealing of what's happening at this paper. Less good news to report today. We're moving to good news. Here's though. a great piece. I don't know if you are familiar with Simon Montefiore, the British historian and author. If you are not 
I highly recommend his book, Stalin, The Court of the Red Czar, if you're into Kremlinology and Russian history, as I am, a great piece. And The Atlantic published an essay from Montefiore that deserves your attention. The decolonization narrative is dangerous and false, says The Atlantic's headline. And what what Montefiore says is he, I want to find just the right passage, but basically he was looking for, he wanted to see whether, how would people respond? What, what would the intellectual community's response to the Hamas attack and the ensuing conflict be? And what he found, of course, was the, well, here, let me read. I always wondered about about the leftist intellectuals who supported Stalin and those aristocratic sympathizers and peace activists who excused Hitler. Today's Hamas ap- apologists and atrocity deniers, what with their robotic denunciations of settler colonialisms, belong to the same tradition, but worse. They have abundant evidence of the slaughter of old people, teenagers, and children. But unlike those fools of the 1930s who slowly came around to the truth, they have not changed their views an iota. The lack of decency and respect for human life is astonishing. Almost instantly after the Hamas attack, a legion of people emerged who downplayed the slaughter or denied actual atrocities had even happened as if Hamas had just carried out a traditional military operation against soldiers. October 7th deniers, like Holocaust deniers, exist in an especially dark place. Important words, important to remember. And the it just points to the value of knowing history, studying history, finding those parallels when they exist. And what Montefiore does here so brilliantly is teases out how, as we were talking about at the beginning, during the Cold War, the false equivalencies between the United States and the Soviet Union, how it happens again and again in the intellectual community, and they never tire of it. It never it never ends. How do we transition from that to Taylor Lorenz, Chris? Another intellectual. From Simon Seabag Montefiore to Taylor Lorenz. Yes. Well, ta- Taylor Lorenz, one of the great thinkers of our time. Oh, my goodness. Our friend John McCormick at... National Review notes that Taylor Lorenz, and actually we should link the Washington Free Beacon's wonderful review of her new book. So our friend John McCormick at National Review notes that her first Washington Post article after the October 7th massacre in Israel promoted the anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist website Mondo Weiss and Lorenz signal boosted the following. Many details of what transpired on October 7th continue to be shrouded in mystery, including how the 1,400 Israelis who died that day were killed. It's hard to know, you know, when they when they videotaped it all. A growing number of reports indicate the Israeli military was responsible for some of those deaths. So this is the website she's signal boosting, and she writes in her column, Posting to her own account and that of Mondo Weiss, a news outlet covering the region from a Palestinian perspective, her latest videos have amassed a collective 1.2 million views. That is from Lorenz's piece. Just a perspective, um, again, just a covering it from a Palestinian perspective. Sickening. Yeah, it's just fair. Sickening. Just about it. Uh, just about viewpoints. I, I, I will just say again, how long can the Washington Post employ Taylor Lorenz? How long? Chris, 
let's talk 2024. Let's do it. And I wanted to add a personal note to this and link something that my dad wrote, but the campaign of Dean Phillips, the Minnesota congressman, is attracting attention because he's a Democrat who's primarying Joe Biden. And he is also our cousin, my cousin and my dad's cousin. And my dad wrote a lovely essay note on his blog Powerline about this that I wanted to direct people to. But that's a note um, just in terms of our conversations about it and our coverage about it at the Beacon. Of course, we have no negative words to say about family members. I have only the most wonderful things to say about Dean. And my dad wrote, the following before Dean launched his campaign, Dean hasn't told me and I haven't asked, but I believe the reason Dean called for a Democratic challenger to Biden is obvious. Dean diplomatically frames it in terms of the need for generational change. Like the little boy in the tale of the emperor's new clothes, he must see what his Democratic colleagues are otherwise afraid to say. As he mounts a challenge to Biden from inside the party, his conscience will be clear. I'm not so sure about his Democratic colleagues. And at the end, you know, of course, my dad and I, who have a similar view on world affairs, don't share Dean's politics, but we've shared many holidays with him and his family. And my dad wrote, and I echo that, as he tests the waters in New Hampshire, I hope Dean can do for Biden what then Minnesota Senator, Senator Eugene McCarthy did for LBJ in the 1968 New Hampshire primary. As a partisan Republican, let me put it this way. This is one campaign in which I support Dean without any mental reservation. And the, the, there is a big media story around Dean Phillips. Excuse me. That was actually my dad. Oh, perfect timing. Good I, His ears must have been burning. The, there is a big media story around the Dean Phillips, because obviously the Dean Phillips candidacy is a media-facing can It's a New Hampshire-facing candidacy, but it's a media-facing candidacy. And he needs to get attention in his bid, but not have the entire left-wing media apparatus come down on him in the way that they did with RFK Jr. Now he's a very different he's a he's a very different kind of candidate than RFK Jr. and he is most notable for his centrism, right? He is a explicitly expressly moderate from a moderate district and he is he is uh, all about that. And I read he we should note he defeated a Republican in when he won and he's in one of these districts that went that turned from Republican to Democrat in the Trump era. And I would say he's a partisan Democrat, but on the center left and notably got into a tangle in the Trump era with the squad, has a contentious relationship with his fellow Minnesota Democrat, Ilhan Omar. And I think that's a sort of a good way to describe where he is. He's a pro-Israel Democrat. Yes. And Greg Sargent, a uh, Democratic, pro-Democrat columnist, at the Washington Post, did an interview with him and wrote it up. And I want to read to you one of the, a little passage here 
Representative Phillips has insisted Biden's failure to secure the U.S.-Mexico border constitutes one of their deepest differences. So I asked what he'd do instead. He supports a bipartisan bill to dramatically speed up the processing of asylum cases while holding all applicants in humanitarian campuses with very few released into the interior. The bill would give legal status to many undocumented immigrants already in the United States and broaden legal pathways for still more to apply from afar. Phillips also supports creating large centers in Central America where asylum cases can be adjudicated without a trek to the border with dormitories where applicants can remain safe, a somewhat novel notion. He'd pair this with new limits on who can seek asylum after arriving here. Now, Sergeant pins him, goes on to, Sergeant defends Biden and says, well, Biden wants to do stuff, but Republicans won't let him. And takes Sergeant takes credit for pressuring Phillips to finally say, yes, Republicans are more to blame than he said, pressed on whether he acknowledges that the GOP is the bigger problem. Phillips replied, yes. So here's what I thought after reading this. If I wanted to be the no labels nominee or have the, they're, they're weird about it, but basically to, to get the, the no labels line for the presidential can nomination, this might not be a bad way to do it, right? And as you read through the way that Phillips handles these questions, his outreach isn't that much within the Democratic Party, right? He's obviously talking to other people. Now, that can help him with independents in New Hampshire who could come in and vote in the primary. But I'm I'm seeing something here. So I want to just put a little note on that and say, well, I'll be I'll be interested to see how it goes. Okay. Okay. You flagged this New York Times piece, how Trump's verbal slips could weaken his attacks on Biden's age. The New York Times doing, doing President Biden's bidding writes, how Trump's verbal slips could weaken his attacks on Biden's age. Donald Trump, 77, has relentlessly attacked President Biden, 80, as too old for office. But the former president himself has had a series of gaffes that go beyond his usual freewheeling style. And they note how President Trump, you know, does a funny impression of Joe Biden with droopy eyelids and mouth agape. Mr. Trump stammers and mumbles. He squints. His arms flap. He shuffles his feet and wanders laggardly across the stage. A burst of laughter and applause erupts from the crowd as he feigns confusion by turning and pointing to invisible supporters as if he does not realize his back is to them. But his recent campaign events have also featured less deliberate stumbles. Mr. Trump has had a string of unforced gaffes, garble, and general disjointedness that go beyond his usual discursive nature and that his Republican rivals are pointing to as signs of his declining performance. Chris, we have talked about this before. You, 2024, you know, that's going to be the year when Donald Trump says something and does something that's beyond the pale. This is really reminiscent of, remember when there was a huge media firestorm about Donald Trump holding the handle when he walked down the stairs of Air Force One? Like, Donald Trump's weakness is he's old. It's not going to be that he says something senile. You know, he's he's crazy. He's not senile. Well, you know, I... I I have to say, I mean, stipulating the the we're we're really in the false equivalency vein today, but stipulating what you say about carrying water for Biden, this is I think a good piece, and I think a directionally correct piece. Trump is goofy and he's confused, and he's it's not 
they quote Ronnie D saying, this is a different Donald Trump than 2015 or 2016, lost the zip off his fastball, DeSantis told reporters. In 2016, he was freewheeling. Uh, He's out there barnstorming the country. Now it's just a different guy. And it's sad to see. It is, here's the, the Trump challenge. He's running against, in the Republican primary, he's running against Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, sure. But he's also eventually running against himself. He's running against the version of himself. And Trump has been running a courthouse campaign uh, in which basically Joe Biden's doing, Joe Biden and the Justice Department and Fannie Willis are, are doing the work for Trump because Republicans see this as a conflict. You know, they're, they're going to stand by their guy against what they see as unfair attacks. But I do think that there's something to the more that Trump's out there and the more that Trump's campaigning and the more that he's doing it, he is different, right? It's not, he's, he's not as good. He's not the same. He still has, certainly has the gift, but I think he does have to deal with the, the shadow between Trump 1.0 and Trump 3.0. My, what I've observed is the following, and I just listened to the audio interview that he did with the Free Beacon last weekend at the Republican Jewish Coalition. His, I wouldn't call them misstatements or gaffes. They don't appear to me to be the result of declining cognitive abilities. He's distracted. Right. And what struck me in this interview with the Beacon was that he his focus is not on the campaign. He, when he was asked questions about the policy positions of his rivals, he has no idea what they are. Right. He's not paying attention to to his challengers. He was asked about DeSantis's efforts to uh, boot Students for Justice in Palestine chapters off college campuses. He was asked about Ramaswamy's shifting positions on Israel. And his response would be, oh, oh, did he say that? Okay, what did he say? Tell me. On the one hand, he doesn't need to be aware of them. He's beating them in the polls right now by 20 to 30 points, depending on what state you're talking about. So he's paying them the attention perhaps that they merit right now. On the other hand, it is indicative that he is not tracking these things closely. His attention, I presume, uh, you, one can't know, is on the court cases. So I take what you're saying that like he's not laser focused on humiliating these guys in the way that he was before. But again, I think the frame of the piece is wrong that I don't think it undercuts his attack on Biden's age. It's indicative of where his attention is. And I think a better frame of this would be like to what extent are – but, you know, where is Trump's focus right now and how will that impact his campaign? Well, I think I think it's not cognitive decline. I, the 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 false equivalency is about cognitive decline. Trump's problem is he's unwell. Right. Like he is he is not a well person and his fuming and obsessions and has not hurt. That's helped him, though. I look, I, I, he 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 pulled off the most astonishing upset in American political history, certainly of my lifetime and of recent memory in 2016. But I would submit that a more rational, more disciplined Donald Trump would have won in 2020 and would be in a much better place to beat Joe Biden. I think that Donald Trump's breakthrough in the Republican nominating process in 2016 was because of he was a fascinating media story and he was loose and riffing and all of that stuff. But I don't think that his his mental his mental incapacity related to his un, un mental ill, ill mental health is an asset. 
His breakthrough was also policy-related in terms of his fearlessness in upending sacred cows on immigration and on trade. And I think that that was vitally important and is an extension of his like mental state in certain ways. His absolute lack of regard for party leaders and and their you know what they think about things. And I think that was important. And it's a little bit hard to separate them. Well, it, it is true that he, that is of a piece and he co-opted a issue, all, all of that stuff. But and can I just contrast that? Sorry to interrupt yeah. you to to Ron DeSantis and where he is on foreign policy, where my sense is he's trying to really carefully triangulate between the rising isolationist tide in the party, the Vivek Ramaswamis and the Nikki Haley's, you know, the neocon light version of the party where he is very sensitive to like, where, where should I be? Where are people? And Trump has no regard for that. And I think that was helpful to him before and is, is an outgrowth of like this recklessness in a certain way. But, but I'm just, I am just riffing. It's funny you say that because the wall street journal has a piece headline. Why Trump's drastic plan to slash the government could succeed. Bum, bum, Subhead Republican presidential front runner wants to fire federal employees, assert control over independent agencies and wrest spending authority from Congress. Well, let me tell you, you read this piece and it's it's kind of hilarious because what they find are there's a whole cottage industry of people who are trying to prepare for the second Trump term people who came from his administration and the general collection of suck-ups who are grinding out policy around Washington and around the country. And what this piece basically does is collects the pipe dreams from, you know, the Heritage Foundation or whatever that would be in Trump's administration and says that with the and the premise is these people have worked up these plans. The Supreme Court is now conservative because of Trump, and they're going to be able to do all of these things. And here's the part that cracks me up. The part that cracks me up is this piece is predicated on the idea that Donald Trump returning to power will be laser focused on conservative priorities, that he will get in there and say, oh, Russ Vaught, thank you so much for working up this plan. Now we turn to fundamentally remaking the Article II powers of the presidency. If Donald Trump becomes president again, he will be laser focused on a lot of stuff, but it will not be advancing the Heritage Foundation's <laughs> blueprints for changing government. In his first term, a lot of conservative stuff got done without like you can look at agencies like the FCC, you can look a around Washington at the EPA, at the Interior Department, where conservatives, unknown to Trump before and mostly unknown to him during the presidency, were able to put a lot of policies into place that conservative think tanks had been working on. Donald Trump, if he returns to power, is not going to need or want the help of those people, right? If he manages to return to power, what did he say? I am your vengeance, right? If Donald Trump returns to power, he will staff his administration 
with people who will never tell him no and give him everything that he wants whenever possible. And the idea that it would be a, a bonanza for small government traditional conservatives is, is I understand why that would be that the the dra- the drastic plan it would be scary and th- I think this piece is scaremongering and misguided why it would be scary to liberals or democrats but I don't think it at all addresses what the real thrust of Trump's presidency would be like and what the real challenges it would face as it confronted the Senate Congress and the 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 new president's desire to punish his enemies Chris, let's talk about the new speaker and the coverage of him, Speaker Mike Johnson. That guy. There is obviously, obviously, there's no subtlety here, a an effort in the mainstream media afoot to cast him as a crazy Christian lunatic. And I wonder how successful that's going to be, given that personality wise, you know, he doesn't come across like a Jim Jordan. He just doesn't have that kind of a personality. But this made me laugh out loud. I saw this piece in Politico magazine. The headline was, quote, it's a quote. He seems to be saying his commitment is to minority rule. A Q&A with historian Christus Kristen Cobes Demez on the Christian nationalist ideas that shaped House Speaker Mike Johnson. This also, of course, gets at the rot in academia. And the piece says on Wednesday, when newly elected House Speaker Mike Johnson gave his first speech in that role, he quoted British statesman and philosopher G.K. Chesterton, who once said, America is the only nation in the world that is founded upon a creed and that it is, quote, listed with almost theological lucidity in the Declaration of Independence. Quote, that is the creed that has animated our nation since its founding and it is and has made us the great nation that we are, Johnson said. Back to the author's words. That line caught the attention of Kristen Cobes Demez, a historian who specializes in evangelical Christianity and politics. The idea that America is founded on a creed is a common uh. one among evangelicals. And it was a sign to her that Johnson adheres to a word worldview that can be described as Christian nationalist. GK uh, GK Chesterton. Christian nationalist. That is. And Johnson, Christian nationalist, because he believes America was founded upon a creed. I I truly think that if you put Johnson's statement to to Americans in a poll, it would get about a you know 90% approval rating. Which is why I think this effort to portray him this way is going to fail. Abraham Lincoln, Christian nationalist. This is this this is a doozy. Look. Johnson is, well, actually, I think this next item speaks to it. This is also from Politico and relates back. Speaker Johnson taps veteran GOP operative as chief chief spokesperson. Mike Johnson has tapped veteran Republican operative Raj Shah to build and oversee his communications operation. According to a person familiar with the move, Shah is expected to serve as Johnson's deputy chief of staff. Previously spent four years as senior vice president for public affairs at the Fox Corporation. Now, you may remember Raj Shaw from the Dominion lawsuit against Fox and some some things that came out about his advice at the network and and all of that stuff. And it puts in context 
how bad Mike Johnson's communications effort is here. So Mike Johnson wins the speakership. Nobody knows beans about Mike Johnson, right? He's a fairly obscure lawmaker whose only claim to fame was that he led the effort. He spearheaded the legal effort to try to help Donald Trump steal a second term. He was he was there and he he grabbed it and went for it. That gave him credibility with the Freedom Caucus and the other people who had helped Trump. But because he was sort of a a, a, a blank canvas, even his countenance, even his face, even he he is has this sort of neutral energy in his affect and did not have a lengthy history and was from Louisiana, Steve Scalise's home state that mainstream Republicans said, okay, like it, we could live, we'll live with this guy. He, he could do it. So you have this opportunity when you win the speakership, who are you going to do your first interview with? What are you, this is a big moment, right? And where did he go? What did he do? He went to Sean Hannity, right? You want to talk about preaching to the choir, right? So with the help of Hannity, with the help of right-wing media, they took out Kevin McCarthy and they blocked other mainstream Republicans from becoming speaker. You have this opportunity. And so he goes on Sean Hannity and that's where he drops his quote about people say, what does Mike Johnson believe in? I say, pick up the Bible. You pick up the Bible and it's in there. Well, I'm pretty sure that the Bible doesn't have anything on the alternate minimum tax. I'm pretty sure that the Bible doesn't hold uh, clear on Ukraine. And I'm pretty sure that the Bible doesn't hold about what we're supposed to do about Ukraine. It was such a misstep and when he should have tried to use the new celebrity to leverage into a new thing. And I, look, Mike Johnson, that Politico piece is going is, you know, unfair and mean spirited and all of that stuff. But I got to tell you, so far what he's doing and with the hiring of a Fox guy, with all, all of that stuff. This is not this is not the way to be. And I will also say, I don't know what will have all transpired by the time this airs, but let's let's be clear. His path to success runs through delivering on a promise to make the House work its will, to restore regular order and do all of that, which is attractive to many groups, including a, a lot of Democrats in Congress. But over the next, I don't know, two months, He's going to have a lot of rocky road to travel in which he's going to have to flex his authority as speaker. If he can't count on the same right wing folks who got him the job to back him now, if he has to suck up to them now, that will not it will it will not go well. I'm going to push back on that in that I think Raj Shaw, who I don't believe has started his job with the speaker yet, I believe he starts next week was a smart hire for him. I worked with Raj closely when I was covering the Trump White House and found him to be one of the honest brokers in that communication shop. And again, I was working at Politico in the mainstream and found Raj to be really someone you could work with. And Raj left Fox after the Dominion stuff. I do think he is a voice of sanity who has contacts in the right wing, and in the mainstream, the question, I think, is will the speaker listen to counsel and guidance from, from somebody who has been through real communications crises? And how much, can, how much will he take counsel here? But I think Raj is a smart hire for him. And, and from a press perspective, I found, to be, he, I found him to be an honest broker, someone with good instincts, and someone who you can really work with. Well, well I'll, I'll disagree. 
<laughs> but then again, I, I, I read the memos. So I, 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 I observe, I observe a very different character in Raj Shaw. So we'll see, we'll see what Johnson does. Chris, that brings us to our facile file. Mm, so good. Mm, this is the best, best one ever. Okay, so clickbait Washington head, Washington Post headline. And I saw it. It made me open it. It worked. Years into a climate disaster, these people are eating the unthinkable. Now, if I say eating the unthinkable, what would you think? What's the first thing you would think of? Bugs. I, was, I went all the way to cannibalism, right? I was like, unthinkable. What's unthinkable? I could think of a lot that people, you know, would eat, but what's the, what, what, what is the taboo? What is the thing that our mind would not even consider? And do you know what the answer actually is? Well, I read the article, so, so I do. Water lilies. That is, they're, they're bitter, they're hard to digest, and they require hours of manual labor. Now, I am not in any way minimizing the suffering of the people of South Sudan. It is a nightmare that the people of South Sudan have endured. Can we also just note, like, I don't think South Sudan was like a thriving place no, with no, a, right, right. a, you know, Michelin star food culture before before the quote unquote climate disaster. The rubbed kale salad was not on. Yeah. Was, not, was not on the menu. <laughs> the sushi was on point. Was not on the menu. So here's the double whammy: clickbait, misleading, trash headline. And then it's a story about climate change, and it goes on and on about how climate change has made life worth worse in South Sudan. And I'm not here saying that the uh, changes in the climate do not have negative consequences for poor people or anything like that. But what makes this piece so astonishingly facile is you have to read long and deep into this piece. You have to. You have to punish yourself by reading this piece on and on and on to get to the fundamental problem, which is the politics, the political system in South Sudan and the tyranny of its leadership and how the aid that people try to send to the South Sudanese. And all of this is stolen, misappropriated, abused. And they don't it what's uh, the story here is there's a lot of people who live in bad places right there's a lot of tough places where people are are having having to eat the equivalent of water lilies around the globe what makes south sudan dif different in many ways from some of them is the shattered politics and governance of the area and it's passed off there's i i don't know that i'll be able to find it but the idea that this is a climate change story instead of what it really is, which is a story about how political dysfunction, political corruption, and bad government fall hardest on poor people. This was a, this was Washington Post. I, no one will ever be able to unseat you as the most facile of all publications. Chris, it is time for our style section. Yes. And we have such a wonderful piece. Headline, quote, sorry for being so blunt. An actress apologizes for making a fat joke on TV more than a decade ago. Have we lost our minds? Do, who, who, tell, tell America who Emily Blunt is. Emily Blunt, a movie star who recently prostrated herself after being savaged online for fat shaming. 
her offense describing a woman who served her at Chili's as enormous. She unleashed the epithet more than a decade ago on the Jonathan Ross Show, a UK television program where she was appearing to flog her latest film. Mr. Ross, who, like Ms. Blunt, is British, was whooping it up with his guest about lavish food portions in the New World, joking that, quote, you can see why so many of our American friends are enormous. Ms. Blunt joined in with her account of the meal at Chili's. The girl that was serving me was enormous, without specifying which outpost in the nationwide chain she patronized, and she mimicked the woman's accent. Did anyone ever tell you you look a lot like Emily Blunt, host and audience laughed along? Entertaining and unkind, of course. Ragingly offensive? Come on, uh, the Wall Street Journal writes. When the interview aired in 2012, it didn't raise eyebrows. But after a clip of the chat reverberated recently around the internet, commentators let loose a shower of vitriol that made enormous sound benign by comparison, slamming Ms. Blunt as fatphobic, horrible, and far worse. The actor swiftly issued a fulsome apology in a statement to People magazine. I'm appalled that I would say something so insensitive, she added. I'm sorry for any hurt caused. I was absolutely old enough to know better. Chris, I don't think we've made progress in de- in a decade. I don't think we've made progress in a decade. And the idea of, I, I get it if I was her publicist, uh, if I was her Raj Shaw, I would say, <laughs> I would say, no pun intended. You got to eat it, right? Like just the people are are coming after you because her major error here is laughing at her audience, right? She's being mean to the people that she wants to go see her movies. She's being, as Brits have a tendency to do, laughing and japing at hickish Americans. So that was her offense. So she had to she had to just say, "I'm the worst. I'm sorry. Please excuse me for my insensitivity." I understand. I understand the thinking behind that, but the idea that things, what's the word they use? Surfaced, surfacing. It's like, oh, okay, you mean someone just went through old clips and found something and they're going to beat you over the head with it, take it out of context. It, it is it, it, it is the tyranny of the mob, that's for sure. And finally, in the style section, this was hilarious. Uh, Puck News had Halloween costume recommendations for how to dress like top media executives. Amazing. And we're going to link that in the show notes, but they had a David Zaslav costume and a Gwyneth Paltrow costume and so on. So it's obviously a visual item, but we will link it in our newsletter. The Zaslav one was amazing. The Uh, two sets of glasses, the jean jacket. Yes. Excellent. Canadian tuxedo. Excellent. 10 out of 10. Chris, that brings us to our obsessions of the week. where we break down the stories we can't get out of our heads. And mine was a free beacon piece written by a Yale sophomore, Sahar Sahar Tartak, who wrote an op-ed for the Yale Daily News on October 12th, referring to Hamas's raping and beheading of Israelis and Two weeks later, on October 20, found, without her knowledge or any consultation with her, that the editors of the Yale Daily News had appended a correction to her piece, 
um, noting that the references to Hamas's atrocities had been removed from it and a correction appended, noting that they could not be substantiated. And she wrote in the Beacon, the Yale Daily News editor-in-chief told me that at the time my piece was published, five days after Hamas carried out a pogrom reminiscent of the bloodiest 19th century atrocities, there was swirling unsubstantiation of the rape and beheading claims. I just will note unsubstantiation is not a word as far as I'm aware. Unlike the Nazis who took pains to hide their actions, Hamas broadcast them to the world. Live videos of the horrors were circulating on the internet and on broadcast television on the day of the attack. For those with lingering doubts or inclined to split hairs about whether victims were beheaded or simply found with severed heads, international reporters were on the ground in Israel within 48 hours hours to chronicle the atrocities. I wish I could write off my classmates' foibles as youthful stupidities, but I see professional journalists making the same mistake. It's not an accident. The Yale Daily News is their breeding ground, and in a few years, the editors who wrote and approved that correction will go on to careers in the mainstream press, which is chock full of Yale Daily News editors and reporters. Take the New York Times, where the author of the flagship daily newspaper, the paper's diplomatic and Supreme Court correspondents, and the host of the paper's hit podcast, The Daily, are all Yale Daily News alumni. And she concluded, noting that the pipeline from the Ivy League newspapers into the mainstream media is full of sewage. And hours after, you know, we sent a request for comment to the editor-in-chief of the Yale Daily News, Annika Seth, who is, of course, you know, head of diversity, equity, and inclusion board at the Yale Daily News. She did not respond to our request for comment, but hours later, the paper issued a correction of its correction in nah. a mealy-mouthed, impossible-to-comprehend statement. But this was such a microcosm of what is happening on all college campuses. And I really did want to recognize the courage of a young lady who just started her sophomore year who is taking on the college journalistic establishment. Here, 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 here. That really, that that was quite a doozy. Okay, my obsession is about cynicism and knowingness in political coverage. And I wrote a piece, Mike Pence dropped out of the race. It didn't have much effect on the race because he hadn't had much effect on the race in recent weeks. And he was already, he was, he was, he was bowing to reality when he dropped out. And there was a Politico piece that was, 3,896 words long. I had to I had to put it into a Word document to get the count because it was so long I couldn't believe it. And the headline originally was Inside Mike Pence's Sad Dwindling Presidential Campaign. And the author of the piece congratulated himself because he said it. Uh, the, the piece went viral, or a photo from the piece went viral, reducing Pence to a punchline on late night TV. And I thought, what a turd. Like, what a, what a, like, the guy's already out, man. What do you want? He already quit. And bragging that you were able to make Mike Pence uh, into a punchline punch on late night TV. Mike Pence made himself into a punchline on late night TV because he is the, was the antithesis of everything that you're supposed to be in American public life to be cool, right? He's the opposite of all that stuff. He's square. He's boring. He is he his 
his rules about meetings with women and lunches with women and stuff. All, all of it is so like 50 Squaresville. The, you think Jimmy Kimmel needed help from Politico to uh, dump on Mike Pence? No, no, no. But what it got me thinking about was this. We should try to have in the media a little more remove, a little a little step back, right? Instead of being cynical, look, Mike Pence had huge structural problems in his campaign, but we don't know what's going to work, right? We don't know what's going to work. We don't know what people are going to like and what people are not going to like. And the I read a piece uh, this week about like, well, actually, Nikki Haley has to step aside because Ron DeSantis is the one who has to go blah, 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 blah. You don't know what voters want. Voters don't know what voters want. Voters are making up their mind. The, the things that we pour over in exit polls and opinion research that talk about what voters, why voters chose who they chose, most of that is post facto reasoning. Most of that is stuff that they come up with to explain the unconscious choice, the feeling that they have about somebody and why it led them to where it led them. And there is a an archness and a cynicism about all of this stuff. Just let them run, right? Just let them run and see what happens. Chris, that brings us to my favorite time of the week, which is reader mail. And we have a note from Mark M. in Texas who writes, On the lighter side, dearest wretches, my two new favorite words, bomboccioni and mamoni. And he links a article, an article from CNN, Parasites, Mother Wins Court Case to Evict Two Sons in Their 40s. And that article... Quotes, the two sons described in court papers by their mother as parasites have been living in the family apartment without contributing financially or helping around the house, according to the complaint filed by the woman who has not been named in the in the tribunal of Pavia District Court. Both men are employed. The court documents state it goes on to say this is not the first time Mamoni, an Italian term used to describe adult men who are too dependent on their mothers, has cropped up in the legal system. In 2020, Italy's Supreme Court ruled against a 35-year-old man who worked as a part-time music teacher who still expected financial support from his parents after he argued that he could not support himself on an annual salary of 20,000 euros, $21,100. But what does bomboccioni mean? Big babies. Um, I... Love it. Love it. Love it. And so Mark writes, Mark writes, a mother's love does have limits, it seems, at least for a 75-year-old woman in the northern Italy, a northern Italian city of Pavia who won a court order after suing to have her sons evicted. Bamboccione, huh? huh? Yeah. Oh, excellent. 10 out of 10. And Chris, that now brings us to your favorite time of the week. Which is when I am forced to say something nice. But as always, you must lead us by example. Okay. I hate the way we board airplanes. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. And everybody hates it. But we have an answer. Wall Street Journal. The astrophysicist 
who has a better way to board airplanes. And United, which I have complained on this podcast about the way that they board their airplanes, is going to embrace some of it. You should read the piece. You can get the details. But here is, here's the pressee. Quote, the first person to board is, is a single aisle jet like a Boeing 737 is the passenger in the window seat on the last row. Let's say that's 30A. The next person would be exactly two rows away in 28A, followed by 26A, 24A, and 22A until the window seats in even rows on the flight were full. Next are the window seats in even rows on the left side and so on. Then come the window seats in odd rows on the right and left side. The same pattern applied to the middle seats and the aisle seats until the last person to board plops into the front row. That's just one permutation. Now, United is going to do something different from this, but I must say, please, faster. This is the kind of research that we need to be highlighting media, so get to work. Chris, my favorite article was Jeremy Stern's piece in Tablet on the cult of Jake Sullivan, our national security advisor, and it's called The George Kennan Who Wasn't. Everyone should read it, and of course, we'll link it. But it is about the Biden administration's botched foreign policy. And the I don't think until this piece there had been a negative article written about Jake Sullivan, but Stern writes... It is not for a journalist, I'm talking about myself now, to insist that there's something morally or intellectually wrong with someone whose political analysis is baldly and repeatedly contradicted by events. But there's clearly something morally and intellectually wrong with the cult of Jake Sullivan, which in turn suggests a crisis of greater proportions than the abject, analytical, and geostrategic failures of a single individual. And I thought that was a point to meditate on in that... This person has been the subject of absolutely glowing media coverage. He's a Yale graduate, a Yale Law School graduate, a Rhodes Scholar, has all of the credentials that our elites like to see. And the glowing media coverage seemed to me really of a an important aspect of this piece in that why has he gotten this coverage Susan Glasser recently recently profiled him in The New Yorker. The New York Times has run repeated glowing profiles of him. And the, the reason, in my view, is that these people have the same backgrounds. They all share the same worldview. And as a result, the incentives are wrong. It is not to hold Jake Sullivan accountable, but they're all rowing in the same direction. And as a result, there are simply no checks these people are not at odds with each other, the media and a figure like Sullivan. They're working together. And that is how we get in a situation like this, how a figure like this continues to rise. And the media aspect of his rise, I think, is the most important part of this. It was really a piece about the media. And I urge our listeners to read this with, with particular attention to the media aspect of the piece. Do it. That is all the time we have for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com and sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Inkstained Wretches from Nebulous Media, produced by Colin Chicola. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches and leave us a five-star review. 